It's midnight. Just a few hours before Easter morning. I'm at the midnight vigil in 2006 at the Greek Orthodox Church. They have a glass ceiling there so you can see the sky during worship. And on this night, there was a huge thunderstorm. So lightning is flashing down into the candlelit sanctuary. And it's flashing on the whole front is painted in these brightly colored pictures of the saints that have real gold outlining them in the lightning flashes. The sanctuary is filled with the smell of incense from this thing. This guy whips around on a chain. I thought if it comes off that chain, someone's going to die. Everyone in the room is holding a candle. The candles are two feet long because they have to last for the entire service three hours. I'm surrounded by beautiful symbols and tradition. And yet, some of the symbols and tradition they had there were really off-putting to me. It was a super dress-up kind of thing, and I was warned, so I was dressed up, and I still couldn't beat out all those Greek kids. Greek kids got some nice suits. I don't really like dress-up stuff. I'm from southeast Kansas. If we put on a turtleneck under the overalls, that's dressing up. The entire service is in Greek, which is fine. It's the Greek Orthodox Church. But it's three hours long, right, from 11 p.m. to 2 in the morning. And uh, so my legs start falling asleep, so I kind of crossed one leg. This guy next to me reaches over and swats my leg. And in this thick Greek accent says, Don't cross your legs in church seats. It was the dad from my big fat Greek wedding. So I'm kind of getting the vibe now. Like nobody really cares that I'm there and no one really cares if I ever come back. I start looking around for anything here that's addressed to me or addressed to anyone who might be there for the first time or wanting to explore the meaning behind all this. I finally find a message addressed to newcomers written in the program. It says, if you aren't Orthodox, when we take communion, do not approach the communion table. Okay. And, and then I saw how they took communion, and I was so, so glad I was barred. They had this big gold chalice with a two-foot-long cloth hanging off of it. And when you came up, these two people would sweep the cloth out and hold it under your chin. So there's this two-foot-long runner going from you to the cup. Why? Because they have a gold spoon with a foot-and-a-half-long handle, and they dip it out of the cup and shovel it right into your mouth, each person. I found another note addressed to me in the program. It says, at the end of the service, you'll get to pass by the altar. If there are any crumbs on the floor, do not step on them. So you have to kind of weave the minefield of the the breadcrumbs. Here we are today to talk about the central symbol of the Christian faith. Some call it communion, some call it the Eucharist, some call it the Lord's Supper. Some call it the Last Supper, some call it the Lord's Table. For some, it's little flat wafers. For some, it's a big loaf. For some, it's an unleavened flat loaf. Sometimes in the cup, it's wine. Sometimes in the cup, it's grape juice. For some churches, it's a little tic-tac-shaped pellet of bread-like material. And a little, Pastor Dan calls it, plastic shot glass of grape juice. I always disliked the little pellet and the the plastic shot glass the most 
because uh, the church that I came to Christ in had a lot of elderly people. And because of their osteoporosis, they could not tip their heads back. So they could never drain that cup more than about halfway. Now, the deacons were also very tight and wanted that grape juice to last as long as they could. So they never filled the cups much more than halfway. So when the tray came to you, this tray filled of half-emptied cups, you weren't sure if the one you were picking had never been filled more than that or had only been partially drained by someone a couple of rows in front of you and now you're going to finish it off for them. This is the central symbol of Christianity and yet the church has argued and fussed for a thousand years over what it means. Maybe you've heard some of these arguments. It's transubstantiation, some say. The bread actually transforms into the body of Christ, which is why in that tradition, unless you're an ordained priest, you cannot touch it, which creates some funny stuff. So there's this video on YouTube. I, my filter kicked in, and I'm not going to show it. It's way too awkward. But this gal's at her wedding, and she's kneeling down to receive, and you know she can't touch it in that tradition. Well, the priest fumbles it and drops it down the front of her dress. And she can't touch it, so without missing a beat, he just fishes in to retrieve it, and, and he's kind of digging around in there. And uh, whew, finally, she kind of swats his hand out and pulls it out, even though she's not supposed to be touching it. But there's a lot of things that weren't supposed to be touched going on in that video. <laughs> For other churches, it's consubstantiation, where it's, it is the body of Christ, but it's also somehow still bread. Some churches prefer remembrance only. It's just bread, it's just juice or wine, and we're just remembering Christ's death and resurrection. John Calvin of the 1500s proposed that it is bread and it is wine, but Christ is truly present. His real presence is in that with us when we receive it. That's the, uh, that's the position we prefer here at Lakeland, that it is bread and it is, it is juice, but uh, Christ is truly present with us and the mystery of, of receiving it. So when I was a kid, we went to a different church and they didn't hardly do the Lord's table very often at all. So my dad was serving the Lord's table to our youth group. And he said, you know, we haven't done this for a while at church. And when you haven't done it for a while, you miss it. And then he got kind of misty eyed. And he said, uh, and it hurts. And I'm in high school, and I'm there with all my friends, and I'm looking at my dad, and he's, he's shedding a tear over the Lord's table. And I thought to myself, what a goober. I mean, who gets misty-eyed and sheds tears over, over, over bread and grape juice? I could not understand why anyone would have an emotion over a symbol like that. In fact, why is everyone so worked up about this? All over the world is just a symbol. And that's the problem with symbols. Some of us hate symbols, anything that's symbolic. We're like, ah. Uh, some of us don't care one way or the other. Uh, some of us really love symbols and get misty-eyed and shed a tear. And some people are obsessed with them and, you know, get in big fights and make a big fuss. So there was a... There was a Baptist church in England many years ago, and a new pastor had uh, taken over the congregation. And one thing you notice is this, this country congregation, they would come into the church, they'd turn to the left, and they would bow, which no Baptist anywhere does. 
And uh, so he asked the folks, why, why do you guys bow to the left when you come in the front door? They said, I don't know. My parents taught me to. Oh, so he found their parents. And, you know, why are you folks all doing this? Well, I don't know. Our parents taught us to do that. He finally went to the oldest members of the congregation who couldn't even attend church anymore. And they said, well, we, we've always done that. Okay, well, they were going to remodel the church anyway, and there was paneling on that wall everyone's bowing to, so they took the paneling off, and what do you think they found behind it? A painted mural of the Virgin Mary. So somewhere way back in history, this had been a Catholic church, and everybody came in and bowed to the Virgin Mary. Well, probably during one of the English wars, when the Protestants took over, they paneled over the Virgin Mary, because Protestants don't bow to the Virgin Mary. And, uh, but it was a country church. Well, the Catholic people aren't going to find some other church to go to, so they just kept going to it and stubbornly continued to bow to that wall because they knew the Virgin Mary was buried behind there. Now, if you're a church geek, you realize the extreme funniness that a group of Baptists was bowing to the Virgin Mary because Baptists don't do that. But because of tradition at that church, they'd been doing it for 100 years. Um, Americans tend to scoff at symbols. In America, when someone says, oh, it's just symbolic, that's almost our way of saying, oh, it doesn't really matter. It's just symbolic, get over it. doesn't really matter. And then we find in our real lives that there are symbols that do matter to us, even though we act like they don't. For instance, if a husband is arguing with his wife, okay, but if he takes off his wedding ring and he throws it and it breaks a picture of his mother on the fireplace mantle, we all go, ooh. Back in the 70s, when the cult leader, Jim Jones, stood up and said, uh, I'm going to lead you beyond this book, And he threw the Bible out into the floor of the sanctuary. Everybody went, "Uh uh-oh. In fact, I thought about about throwing this to see what it would feel like, and I just can't do it. I just can't do it. When the mother of the groom, the mother of the groom, shows up as a wedding I officiated at, when she shows up in all white, see all the women in the room go, oh. Everyone knows only the bride wears pure white at the wedding. Who's, what's this gal trying to pull? When, when the bride shows up and comes down the aisle wearing a blood red dress, everybody goes, ooh, that girl naughty. <laughs> when protesters burn the American flag, some of us are outraged. When my mom brought, bought my sister a trampoline for Christmas. Trampolines won't fit under the Christmas tree, so my mom thought it would be a funny joke if she put in my sister's stocking two lumps of coal. When my sister opened that stocking, the symbol was immediately recognized. She burst into hysterical tears and ran away. Santa had given her two lumps of coal, reserved for the worst of the worst children in all the world. They barely got her calmed down to go outside and see the trampoline. And when they do that uh, gun salute at the funeral of a veteran and they present the flag on behalf of the President of the United States and a grateful nation, who always gets misty-eyed and shed a tear? Me, who can't understand why someone would shed a tear over the symbol of communion. As little as attention as I used to pay to the Lord's table, even I got hot when I heard that a university campus ministry 
had decided to serve the Lord's table. But instead of serving bread and wine, they gave everyone donuts and Coke. Because God's love is sweet. Oh, isn't that sweet? That's stupid, I said. That's too much. That's too far. Wait just a minute. Maybe our cynicism about uh, symbols and that they don't matter has, has gone too far. Maybe there is more to the Lord's table than we thought. So let's go back and let's remember how this all began. In Matthew 26, the upper room, the night before Jesus is crucified. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take this and eat it, for this is my body. And he took the cup of wine and gave thanks for it. He gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you and my Father's kingdom. Then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. So Jesus is giving them a visible sign of invisible grace. He's taking something they can see, bread and wine, to give them something they can't see, the love and forgiveness of God. And he's not just giving them a sign, but he's giving them an effective sign. It's not pointing to an idea. It's pointing to something that actually happens and that we take part in. God forgives us and we receive Christ into our life. So this is what makes the Lord's table a sacrament, a visible sign of the invisible grace of God. And it's not just a sign of ideas, but it's an effective sign of something that actually happened. God paid for the sin, God pays for sins and forgives us. We don't just think about forgiveness when we receive communion, we receive it. Now, symbols may not be real in themselves, but they point to something that is powerfully real. I think of the symbol of the wedding ring. Now, several years ago, I was having some trouble with my wedding ring in that if on a hot day, if my hand got wet, my ring could kind of slip off. So I was swimming with my daughter um, at a pool, and I, I took my ring off. And the next day, I looked down at my hand, no ring. Like, oh, where did I put that ring? So I went to my wife. I said, okay, yesterday we were swimming. I took my ring off, but I don't remember where it ended up. I've lost my, I've lost my wedding ring. And my daughter bursts into tears, sobbing. I said, oh, honey, what's, what's the matter? Why does the ring upset you like that? And she said, because I don't have a dad anymore. So I had to explain to her that the ring is not what makes me Ashley's husband or her dad. It points to something that really happened, a commitment and a pledge I did make to, to love, honor, and cherish her and to raise children with her. And, and the pledge is what makes me her dad. The ring just points to it, but it points powerfully to it. So we went looking for it in, in typical Garrett fashion. I, I had it the whole time. It was in the zip pocket of my swimming trunks. So I'm, I'm that guy who walks around like, like this around the house. Where are my keys? I, they were right there. Yeah. Oh, there you go. That happens 
often. The ring doesn't make it a marriage, but it's a symbol so powerful in our culture, you don't go without a wedding ring unless you've got a good story or a good reason to back it up. Usually about somebody of yours who got his finger ripped off at the workplace when his snagged it. So all you non-ring wearers, you can swap your stories after service. In the same way, communion doesn't make you forgiven, but it points powerfully so powerfully to the story of Christ that we dare not skip it without a good reason why. The Apostle Paul uh, shared this story in uh, 1 Corinthians with his church in Corinth. We're in chapter 11. He says, For I passed on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this, and remember, uh, do this to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So we don't just receive the benefits of Christ, which is eternal life. We also receive the person of Christ into us. And we also receive the pledge of Christ to return and rule over us in his good kingdom. Now there are some folks, maybe here today, who should not take part in the Lord's table. Uh, Those who don't yet profess Jesus as Lord. And... Those who don't want to be a part of his church. Now, the first one probably doesn't surprise you, but the second one, uh, first one, yeah, second one might surprise you. That someone who doesn't want to be a part of the church should also not receive the Lord's table. Now, Paul was sternly warning his congregation in this passage that we just read not to come to the Lord's table ignoring your brothers and sisters. He goes on about this for two chapters. Chapters 11, uh, 10 and 11, if you'd like to read it this afternoon in 1 Corinthians. He says, uh, don't come to the Lord's table ignoring your brothers and sisters, particularly the poor ones. So th- they had uh, what they called the love feast back then. And so they it was like a big potluck. And then they would also do these, this symbol of the Lord's table. Well, what was going on in Corinth is people who could, didn't have to work so late or didn't have to work at all would show up and they'd, of course, bring a ton of food. But by the time laborers could get off work and get to church, all food was already eaten. Everything was already gone. Read, read 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11. And so Paul was saying, you know, don't treat each other that way. Wait. Wait for everyone to show up and then let the feast begin. For Paul, the way the Lord's table unites us to each other was just as important as the way it unites us to Christ, which is the true meaning then of this verse that you hear wrestled with a lot in sermons, uh, verse 28. That is why you should examine yourselves before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. So the early churches would examine themselves before they took part in the Lord's table to see if they had any unresolved hate or unforgiveness or uncharity, if they'd been ignoring others in the church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German 
uh, Christian, and he ran underground churches during the Nazi regime. So there were official Christian churches in Germany, but the Nazis basically controlled what they taught. So there were these underground churches that preserved Christianity for Germany, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer ran one. And here's something he wrote in this little book uh, called Life Together about how they should do the Lord's table. It is the command of Jesus that none should come to the altar with a heart that is unreconciled to his brother. If this command of Jesus applies to every service of worship, indeed to every prayer we utter, then it most certainly applies to the reception of the Lord's table. The day before the Lord's Supper is administered, we'll find the brethren of a Christian fellowship together, and each will beg the forgiveness of the others for wrongs committed Nobody who avoids this approach to his brother can go rightly prepared to the table of the Lord. All anger, strife, envy, evil gossip, and unbrotherly conduct must have been settled and finished if the brethren wish to receive the grace of God together in the sacrament. So maybe we'll want to think about that in the weeks to come as we celebrate the Lord's table. That if there's any buddy in the church who's hurt you or whom you have hurt or they, you gossip about them or they gossiped about you, that we'd be reconciled to one another so that the full meaning of the Lord's table uniting us to Christ and uniting us to one another uh, can be observed. This is why we tear off the loaf here and dip it in the cup. We're trying to keep the symbol of one loaf one cup, one family. Now, it was a sad day several years ago when we got so big that it just took too long, so we went to two loaves. What a sad day that was. And now we're up to, you know, four or five loaves sometimes. So, uh, but try to imagine that the symbol is one. One loaf, one cup, one family. Now, I hear that sometimes some folks will avoid coming to the Lord's table because they feel too sinful, they feel too sinful, and, and they feel like that would be drinking judgment on themselves. Uh, that's, uh, I would not apply the verse that way. In fact, I, I think you've actually got that backwards. Um, this is the moment when we receive the forgiveness of God. So of all the things we do in church, that's the one you shouldn't avoid. That's the one you should come forward for, to receive and repent and be forgiven by Christ. First thing we do, not the last. So there's a lot going on right now when we receive the Lord's table, but there's also some things in the Lord's table to look forward to. Um, look at uh, John chapter 6, verse 53. So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. I live because of the living Father who sent me. In the same way, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate manna, but will live forever. As Jesus was raised from the dead, so will we be. In glorious new bodies that will never know death again. So forget about, you know, sitting on a cloud and playing a harp or being stuck in an eternal church service where you just get to sing, sing, sing for millions of years. 
Christ taught us there'd be a new heaven and a new earth and new bodies. Jesus will return and reign in his kingdom and we will reign at his side, which is something that takes some getting used to. Much of that kingdom already is and much of that kingdom is also yet to come. So we call this the already but not yet principle in Christianity. And if you can get this already not yet principle down, much of what we do in the church is going to make a lot of sense to you. So we announced that the kingdom began at Jesus' resurrection. And now we go sweeping shadows from all the dark corners of the world. We serve everyone we can, heal everyone we can, love everyone we can, announce the good news of Jesus to anyone who will listen and receive it. We know he will reign. We know every knee will bow and every tongue confess. We know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. That is all already true. But we have to also wait for his return, his consummation of his kingdom. In every part of the world, there are still people trying to live in ungodly ways, greed, violence, fear. This is why we must proclaim there's a better way than that. That's not going to get you what you think you want. Human sin still has a powerful effect. There's still some not yet. Already and not yet. And in the words of communion, we're going to say in just a a few moments, you'll hear God's pledge to return when it says, you remember my death until I eat and drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. So the fact is that communion isn't just a, a symbol of the pledge, but it's also a seal. It's a sign of the already, but also a seal of the not yet. Like when a king would make a document and he'd put some wax on it and then press his ring into it. And say, this is my word, this will be carried out. So when you receive communion, you're receiving his seal that all that not yetness in the world will also be um, healed by Christ. So we've talked enough. If this is a sign and a seal and a symbol of all the things we've said it is and we can experience all of that together, then we'd do best just to experience all that together. So let's begin with confession. Let us pray this prayer together from the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer. Let us pray. I hope the words are there. Yes. Most merciful God, we confess we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Let us keep a moment of silence while each of us confesses our sins before the Lord. Amen. If the servers want to come forward, we'll remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took a cup, he said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you remember my death until I eat and drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. So in a moment, you'll have a choice. 
You can come down the aisle. You can tear off a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and receive everything we've talked about here today and celebrate that. You could also linger where you are and think that over. This is a place where we wanted to tell you this story. We hope that you will receive it. But if you're not to that place, then this would be a time to stay where you are and think it over. What would it mean for you to become a follower of Jesus? On the one hand, you're probably saying, well, I kind of find it hard to believe in a God. On the other hand, I find it hard to believe in a universe as complex as this one without a God. So both require some sort of leap of faith. It's just a matter of which leap of faith you're going to take. Which will leave you a third choice. Maybe you want to take the leap of faith toward this God, this God who reveals himself. This seems true to you, that if there were a God, he would make a way for us to know him. He'd be like a father who always loves and forgives children, understands what they don't know, takes the hardship on himself, makes a way back to him. That seems right. If that's the case, then you can come down and tear off a piece of loaf, uh, dip it in the cup, and when you receive it, you are receiving Christ. You're becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. And you can do that today. If you do uh, do that today, um, we have a, this is an interesting day for you because after second service, if you would like to stay or come back, we have a meeting about being baptized. It's going to happen. And we'll talk more about that here in a minute. But that's the second sacrament of the church when you kind of begin your Christian journey. I'd love to invite you to that. So think that over. It's a very important decision. For everyone, let us stand together and proclaim the mystery of faith. That's the one. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Hallelujah. The gifts of God for the people of God. Each day may Christ be as real to you as this cup, as this food and this drink. May his invisible grace be as visible to you as these elements. That's what a sacrament is. If it seems right to you, come forward when you're ready. Well, let us stand together to receive the benediction. Benediction means the good word, so it's kind of a blessing more than a prayer. So my hands are out because it's like, you know, it's supposed to be symbolic of the blessing going out to you. And if you want, you don't have to, but if you want, you hold your hands like this, like symbolic of receiving, receiving the blessing. So may you always be uh, not just receiving the invisible signs or the visible signs of God's invisible grace, but may you also be a sacrament this week to someone. May you be a visible sign of the invisible grace and forgiveness of God. Equipped with that mission on Pentecost Sunday, go out into the world in peace. Amen.